Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that you give to us your word so that we might draw close to you, that we might have the words to express to you our love as you've given them to us throughout your scriptures. And, uh, and I'm thinking particularly of the Psalms, how you teach us how to worship you. And Lord, we pray that as we listen to your word, as we think about the things and ponder the things that you have told us, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving through us and um, teaching us and then enabling us, empowering us to uh, go out from here and to actually put your word into practice. So we pray that we might be people in both truth and in deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're looking at the transfiguration, and uh, it's um, Glory on the Mountain, we've, we've titled it. We're looking at Luke chapter 9, and a, a little bit of review. Um, we're basically trying to work our way through the Gospels between Christmas and Easter, and just looking at the life of Jesus and what's been going on um, in these intervening years, particularly the three years of his public ministry. So if you remember, um, in the f at the beginning, he was baptized when he was 30, and that was really embarking on his public ministry uh, to all the people. And mostly, he went down to Jerusalem for the feast days, but mostly he stayed up in the north, in Galilee. And so he's been up there, essentially, for two years in Galilee. He did go to other places. He went up to um, Sidon, which is up um, on the coast north of Israel. And he's gone to other places, but he's predominantly um, had his ministry around the region of Galilee. And that's where he did most of his miracles. And so uh, we got up to last year, um, or last week, the two years, um, the first two years of his public ministry. So now we have uh, concluded that, and we're at a, a change point in the scriptures. And we're in Luke chapter 9 starting at verse 18. And if you remember last week, Pastor John spoke on, I'm going to quiz you. Anyone remember? Yeah, that hit me too, the river people, river people or desert people, that one hit home. Um, the feeding of the 5,000, yeah, the, the loaves and the fish. And so we had the feeding of the 5,000, which he fed to at least 5,000 people, but that's just basically counting the men. So there would have been more people, maybe even 10,000, I don't know. And uh, so in that feeding of the 5,000, obviously he's feeding a multitude. And so he's teaching a multitude, and he feeds a multitude. And um, now he's um, finished that, and it says, And it came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. 
And he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And so that's what we're going to look at is the multitudes. So who do you say that I am? So who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered. Who answered? Who's he talking to now? His disciples. And said, John the Baptist, they, they think he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, because remember, they're waiting for Elijah to come. Um, but others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. Uh, remember, Herod thought that at the beginning of this chapter in Luke. Herod thought that. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Now, that ought to make us wonder, because aren't we supposed to proclaim the name of Jesus? So why did Jesus say that to them? saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited? if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so as we look at this passage, what we're really trying to um, understand is, first of all, why does Jesus say to them, don't say anything? And what did Peter mean when he said, you are the Christ of God? That's not normally how we read that. And um, why did the multitudes think these things? And so all these questions we're asking as we're reading through um, this portion of Scripture and then, what did Jesus mean about losing your life to save it? Or if you're trying to save your life, you're going to lose it. Like, these are all pretty major things. And then, how is it that he would be ashamed of us? So, um, those are kind of the kinds of things we really want to look at and say, well, I don't understand this. What does this mean? But the, the meaning is really within the text. And so, as we look at it carefully, we're going to see. So, remember, he was talking to the multitudes. He's finished the two years of what we call the, the time of um, preaching up in the north. He's coming down to the south. And it says in other scripture at this point is where he resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem. And in fact, when he goes through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, they wouldn't let him stay there because he was heading to Jerusalem. So he resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem um, right about now. And so as he's... Uh, Talking with him, he says, who do the multitudes say that I am? So one of the, they have a prophecy about Elijah coming back, and so it's in Malachi, and they were thinking, well, it's the servant who's coming back. That must be who he is. And there were other scriptures as well. And so they think, well, maybe that's it. So they're not just pulling these names out of a hat. There's reasons why they're saying these names. Um, they also thought, well, maybe it's John the Baptist, like he's come back to life because he's already been beheaded. But remember, Herod is so filled with guilt, he thinks, well, it must be John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt me for what I did. 
Um, other people said, well, it's one of the other prophets that have risen again. And he said to uh, his disciples, okay, that's what the multitudes say, but what do you say? And really the question is for us, what do we say when we are asked who Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Who do you pr proclaim and profess him to be? Good man, good teacher, a, a faithful kind of person, a son of God, or the son of God. And all these things don't mean the same thing. And so um, he's calling us. This is what he's wanting to hear from us. But what does Peter answer? Peter speaks up and he says, well, you are the Christ of God. And um, Jesus warns them and instructs them not to tell this to anyone because they have not yet made the paradigm shift. A paradigm is a model or an understanding. And they haven't made the shift from what they were thinking that Jesus was coming to do to what he has come to do at this point. So they're thinking Rome. Rome is a huge problem. Just like Egypt was a huge problem, Rome is a huge problem. And we want deliverance from Rome. We want out from under their thumb because they're, um, they're subjugated by Rome. And so they're thinking, well, we're going to get deliverance from Rome. And that's the understanding, really, of what he's saying here. Because what Peter says is the Christ of God means the Messiah, the Deliverer. And Peter is still thinking, we know from the other scriptures, he's still thinking Rome is the problem. And if we can just get out from underneath Rome's thumb, we'll be fine. Have we ever thought that about the government? <laughs> If we can just get out from under an ungodly regime, we'll be fine. And yet, we need to make this paradigm shift just like Peter needed to and the other disciples needed to. We need to move from our understanding of where true power and authority comes from. That's why we sang those songs this morning about power and authority. We need to understand, we need ourselves to make this shift that it's not the power and authority of government or of money, or of fame and influence. It's the power of God that actually changes things. Somebody asked me, well, why would you go down to Ontario for this um, particular um, function that I'm going to? And uh, they said, it's kind of useless, and you know, we already know all this stuff, so why would you go down there? And my answer was, is because I want to be an influencer. And I can't be an influencer if I don't get out. And I need to get out by the power and authority of Jesus Christ, not of my own, not of any um, title that we might get or any kind of money that's behind us or however many likes we have on Facebook. It's actually going to be through the power of Jesus Christ. And so we want to look at that as Peter um, is learning about this himself. And we're learning along with Peter because the world's way is not God's way. So he warns them not to tell anyone at this point. Because later, when he ascends, he says, go and tell the world. So at this point, the whole um, crowds that are following him are expecting him to be that kind of a deliverer. And yet he's not going to do that kind of deliverance until our future. So it's still in our future when he's going to deliver all of us from this kind of subjugation. But at this point, he hasn't come for that reason. And until Peter is able to make that shift, 
we're going to see he actually is powerless. And the same thing with us. If we don't understand true power and authority that comes from God and flows through us, we will be ineffective. And so we're going to watch how um, that plays itself out. The Lord goes on to say, um, you know, Peter's thinking the deliverer from Rome, and the Lord says, the Son of Man must suffer, actually. That's what's going to happen. And he's going to suffer not just from Rome, but from the chief scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests. These are all rulers of the, of the nation of Israel, the religious leaders. He says, I'm going to have to suffer from them. And um, I'm going to, they're actually going to be successful in their eyes because I'm going to be killed. And for you guys, I just want you to have the hope that on the third day, not 2,000 years later, not 4,000 years later, but on the third day, I will rise again. I am so glad the Lord did it so quickly so that we could have that hope. And so he says, it's only going to be three days, and then I will rise again. Even in that three days, they lost hope. So imagine if we didn't have that resurrection to look back on. And so he says, on the third day I will be raised up. And he was saying to them all, but if you want to follow me, you are going to have to do the same thing. You're going to have to deny yourself. Remember, he did not, it was read this morning um, by Cheryl, the, what we call the kenosis passage in Philippians 2, where it talks about what Jesus did. He humbled himself. He emptied himself, really, of his... Um, his powers and his authority, except by through the Father. So he, remember, it said he doesn't do anything except for what the Father directs him to do. And so as the Father worked through him, but in his humanity, he set aside his glory. Like we shouldn't even be able to see the face of God without dying. But Jesus came and veiled himself in human flesh so we actually can look upon the face of God and not die because he is God. And so um, he says, we're going to have to deny ourselves like he did. We're going to have to empty ourselves like he did, take up our cross. Now that doesn't mean um, that we just live with difficulties. It actually means self-sacrifice for the sake of others. He took up his cross for the sake of others. And that's going to be the same as us, that we are going to take up our cross daily and follow after Jesus. Wherever he goes, we go. He goes to the cross, we go to the cross. And then he goes on to say, if you wish to save your life, you're going to lose it. Like save your life the way the world does it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, for Jesus' sake, then that's the one who has a saved life. For what is it profit if you do gain the whole world? Let's just say, just imagine for a few minutes, that all of a sudden something happened and things changed in the world and all of a sudden everybody, all the reporters came to talk to you. And they're going to talk to you and your name is going to be broadcast all across Canada. And because we have internet and all these people watching, it's going to be picked up all over the world. And all of a sudden, the whole world is going to say, oh, they are the most amazing person. That's you. And we want to give you all our money. Now you have all the money in the world, and you have all the fame in the world, and everybody just loves you. Yeah, you have the best bike, the best of everything, but you don't have a heart for God. What good is any of that 
if you don't love God. Because when it comes to the end of your life, you do not take any of that with you. None of it. Even if you have impact, like let's say you did some great discovery that impacts generations to come. So what? You're dead. How does that profit you? It doesn't. So he's saying even if you gained everything in this world, it's to no profit if you lose your soul. And so, um, so I mean, obviously we need to hear that. Because what these guys have to go through, because every single one of them is going to get martyred, and what they have to go through, they need to remember this. And it's no different than you and I. We need to know these things. If we're going to make it through this life with a sacrifice life to Christ, we need to know that there's hope and there's a reason for the sacrifice. And he says that we will have salvation. And he then he talks about the very end. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. That's the scripture. If we are ashamed of the scripture, we're in this category. We need to not be ashamed of either Jesus or his word. If anyone is, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Like when he returns on his white horse with all of the holy army with him. Um, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, then Jesus will be ashamed of us. And I don't think there's anybody here who would want Jesus to be ashamed of them at that time. All of us want Jesus to look at us and say, oh, you, I love you. You are so faithful. And you did it. And you sacrificed your life for my sake. Whatever that life is, it may not be that we sacrifice our physical life in terms of death. We may not be martyred, but we daily give ourselves to Jesus Christ and to, to others. And he's, But he does say to them, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And I think he's talking about what's coming next, which is the transfiguration. So I think that um, that's probably what he's talking about. But he's He's helping us to see the paradigm shift of the world's power, which is all those things we listed. The world gets all its power either through influence, like government influence, either through fame or through money, those kinds of things. And he says, that is world power. But I'm talking about God power. That's where you're going to get your true power and authority. And when you get it from there, then, wow, Things change. So they're going to get a glimpse of what that looks like. And I think it's not by accident that it's put here, that we're understanding it here. Remember, Luke is the one who puts things in chronological order. And so Jesus has been teaching about power, and now he's going to give them a glimpse of his glory, which is an amazing thing. I think I would have loved to have been there. And um, I'm not sure that I would have been like Peter or like one of James and John who were also there, um, or the disciples who heard about it later. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James, so we call them his inner circle, and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, we don't know what mountain this is. Some have suggested that it's Mount Hermon because Mount Hermon is the famous mountain up in the north and Jesus is still up in the north teaching. So the thought is maybe it's Mount Hermon, but we don't actually know that. 
but he did take them up to a high place, which is where all these amazing things happen, like Moses up on the mountain, and um, you know the, the use of Mount Gerizim and, and Mount Ebal to tell the law, to speak the law back and forth in Deuteronomy. We see lots of things happening on mountains and the Mount of Olives, where Jesus um, declares what's going to happen. And when he returns on the Mount of Olives, and Mount Calvary, what we call Mount Calvary. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And that word there is like flashes of lightning. It's not just sort of like, oh, well, you know, it's really, really white, like the sun coming off of it. He actually became radiant from within. It wasn't reflected glory. This is his glory shining out from him. And it came like flashes of lightning, which if you know the book of Revelation, you know that's how he, dis he is described in the book of Revelation. And um, his clothing was like that too. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Interesting that they were so recognizable about, by these guys. There's no photography. There's, you know, how would they know what Moses and Elijah looks like? But they knew right away that was Moses and Elijah. And I think it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what it's going to be like in glory. You know, we will recognize one another and we'll just know who each other is. And people that, you know, lived a hundred years ago will know who they are too. Um, so Moses and Elijah are with him who appearing in glory. So they also are all, um, is that word there for glory is splendid, um, splendid, like Splendor is around them. Um, we're speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. These guys always sleep. But when they were fully awake, oh, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about as, they were, as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, so this is Elijah and Moses are um, parting, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. It's a good thing we were here. And let us make three tabernacles or um, tents or, you know, it's the understanding of sacred tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Aren't you so glad now that you weren't there? I can imagine me saying something like that. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Now, they do later. But at this point, they don't say anything about what they saw. That would be quite something. So let's just have a look at this, at what actually transpired. So this is what we call the transfiguration. So um, in Matthew, it actually uses that word that he was transfigured, or his, it's the Greek word metamorpho, which means um, the form of him changed. So he no longer was in the form of just man, He's now showing the radiance of his glory as deity. And so they're witnessing this, and they see this, and they're um, 
remembering it later in a completely different way than what I think that they are experiencing at the time. But Jesus knows what they have ahead of them, and he knows what he has ahead of him. And I think that the Father is just giving this glimpse, this unveiling for this short period of time to see. And I think that this is what happens when we read the Word. We just have it unveiled for a short time what it's going to really be like. We see in part what the return of Christ is going to be like, but we can't actually know because it's so beyond our imagination. It's so beyond our imagination. And so we think we can imagine, you know, what it'll be like. It's just, it's not going to be anything like that. It's going to be so much better, so much more, so much more glorious. I think that we're going to be crying and laughing and falling on our face and standing up. And I think we're not going to know what to do with ourselves. I think that's what we're going to be like. And so um, when Jesus, for that short time, he's revealed, I just want to look at what happens. So we saw his appearance. Now we saw these two men who were talking with him. And I think it's very interesting because they're talking to him about his departure. Like he's, he's explaining to Moses and Elijah what's going to happen to him. I find this very fascinating. We just assume that Moses and Elijah must know everything by now because they're long gone. They've been with the Lord. Now they know everything. Do you know not even the holy angels know the timing? They don't know exactly what's going to happen. Satan certainly doesn't. First of all, even if he did know the scriptures, which we know that he knows in part, he doesn't know it by the Spirit of God, he just knows it like a, a wooden reader would read it, but he doesn't believe it. That's the thing. He doesn't believe these scriptures. That's what sets us apart from those who follow after Satan because we actually believe these things. But Moses and Elijah are talking to him. Now we know that Moses and Elijah represent, Moses represents what? The law. And Elijah was a what? Prophet. So he represents the prophets. So we have Moses and Elijah who represent the law and the prophets who both testify to who Jesus is. If you read the Old Testament with the revelation of the New Testament, then you will see Jesus right through the Old Testament, which is like the fun part. It's just, oh, here it is, oh, here it is, oh, here it is again, you know, where it just keeps pointing to who Jesus is and what God is planning to do. And so um, Moses and Elijah are testifying to that. Now, I, I did read, um, this was quite some time ago, I just thought it was kind of cool, I'll just mention it, you can do what you want with this thought, that Moses represented the resurrected saints because he actually died, and Elijah represents the raptured saints because he doesn't die. He just gets translated up into heaven. And so I thought that was kind of a cool thought, but you can do what you want with that thought. So, um, But the, the law and the prophets give testimony. And I just think that we want to look at, like, they would, Moses was so revered by them. And remember, when Moses went in to meet with God, when he came out, what did he look like? He was radiant. He was radiant. And so what did he have to put over his face? A hanky. He had to wear a hanky over his face, a veil, because they couldn't look at him, because he was so radiant. But after a while, he took it off because it faded. And it says in the book of Hebrews that Moses had a fading glory. 
And it's not just re referring to that, although it is, it's referring to the law is making way for the one who fulfills all the law. And so um, Moses um, really, in a sense, prefigured this transfiguration of Christ, the glory of God. The sh we call it the Shekinah glory of God is being seen. And so, um, but Moses, they both had very strange departures. So I want us to look at um, Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 to 6. So if you'll just flip with me to there. This is the departure of Moses. And when I teach Deuteronomy, uh, when I get to this section, I just cry because um, he was so important to them. He was such an important, um, to, to lose Moses and then to go into the promised land without him. It, it's tragic. It's tragic that Moses doesn't go in and it's tragic that they go in without him. And uh, Joshua is, um, has been such a close companion and he loses Moses and then he's got to take the people across the Jordan. And so to me, this is... Um, it's so sad, but it's the death of Moses. Verse 1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. So it's on the other side of the Jordan. Jericho is down in the Jordan River Valley, and um, he would be able to see across to, to Jericho, across the Jordan River. So remember, he doesn't get to go into the Promised Land. But look at what God does for him. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. Now, Joshua hasn't gone in and delineated all the land to all the tribes at this point. And yet, Moses has seen all this land. Like, Dan is way up in the north. Gilead is in the north. And all of Naphtali, also up in the north. And the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, which is a central area. And all the land of Judah, that's all down in the south, as far as the western sea, which is all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, you cannot stand... On, a, on Mount Nebo and see the Mediterranean Sea unless it's supernatural. And so God is supernaturally letting him see all of the promised land. So although Moses didn't enter it, God allowed him to see all of it supernaturally. And the Negev and the plain in the Valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. So that's down at the bottom of the Dead Sea at the south end. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, meaning God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. Imagine being buried by God himself, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Well, let's look at Jude, verse 9. Because this is where the New Testament is revealing something that isn't told to us in the Old Testament. Jude is right before the book of Revelation. And verse 9 gives us insight into what happened to Moses' body. So Moses died. God buried him. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him, against the devil, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So now we know what happened 
is Moses' body, actually, there was a, a fight in heaven between Michael the archangel, who is the, the warrior angel who leads the armies, um, and is the, the angel, we understand, the angel of Israel. Um, Michael is fighting against the devil because the devil wants Moses' body. What do you think he's going to do with Moses' body? I got a feeling if we had Moses' body today, we'd all be going and worshiping Moses. And so whatever the Lord's reasoning, um, he doesn't let Moses' body be taken. Maybe it's because of this scripture today. Maybe there's something to do with that. I don't know. It doesn't tell us anymore. But we do know that this happened. And so Moses had kind of an odd departure. It's sort of like not the normal way to leave this earth, all these things, because it says about him that, you know, even though he was 120 years old, he could still see incredibly well. He was still really vigorous and, and fit. And so he wasn't a decrepit old man at 120 years old. The other one is Elijah, and we hear of his departure in 2 Kings. So if you want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, we see um, most of Elijah's ministry is recorded in 1 Kings, and uh, Elisha's ministry is 2 Kings. But we see the departure um, as Elijah passes his mantle on to uh, um, Elisha or Elisha. So um, look at verse 11. It's just the two men. They're together. And um, before Elijah had told Elisha, he said, you know, just go away because Elijah is this total introvert. And he, you just see him doing this all the time. He's always pushing Elisha away. He doesn't really care if Elisha follows him or not. And so he always seems to be pushing him away. And he says, you can just go. You know, basically, I know I'm going to die, so you just go. And Elisha says, I'm not leaving you. Because he was told that if he's with Elijah when Elijah's taken, that he will have that power, that prophet power that Elijah had. And he says, I'm not leaving you. And so he just faithfully sticks with him. Then it came about as they were going along and talking that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. So they have this supernatural chariot of fire and the ch and the horses of fire that separate Elijah from Elisha and Elisha's just you know he's looking because he knows he's he cannot take his eyes off of Elijah and he saw him no more then he took hold or um the ch sorry I missed this part um and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven and Elisha saw it and cried out my father my father the chariots of Israel and its horsemen Totally a picture of the second coming, of, the, of all the things that we see in Revelation. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he also took the mantle of Elijah. And he went forth, really, in the power of Elijah, the prophet power, the power that came from God. And so um, Elisha did not, or Elijah did not leave in a normal way. He went in a whirlwind to heaven, like sort of, you know, Dorothy, only she came down in Oz. <laughs> Elijah didn't come back down again. <laughs> and so we see, you know, that would have been amazing to watch Elijah going up and Elisha's calling out and he's saying, my father, my father, you know, as a sign of respect to his mentor. And he sees him going up, and there's nothing he can do. 
Elijah doesn't die. He just gets taken up by God. Where does he go? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But it does tell us in so many prophecies he will return. Not like, not like the Lord Jesus. He's coming back to declare, to prepare the way of the Lord. Now we do know that that's also John the Baptist. But I think there's more to it than that. And so both of these men have these kind of odd departures. It's not like this happens to everybody in the Bible. These are, these are kind of set apart. And now here they are talking with Jesus about Jesus' departure, which also is not going to be like any of the other ones that are recorded. Because Jesus is going to be glorified after the resurrection. We say, well, there are other people who were resurrected, like Lazarus and other people, but they all die again. Jesus doesn't. He comes back in his glorified body after the resurrection. And so um, they're talking to Jesus. And I think Jesus is putting the pieces together for him. And remember, Moses and Elijah don't have problems with unbelief, like the disciples do, like we do sometimes. And they're listening, and they're hearing, and it's being revealed to them. And Jesus is telling them, this is what's going to happen. And so um, as they were parting, now, I don't know if it clearly says it here for us to understand, but these guys have fallen asleep, and it would seem like it was a fair bit of time that was going on. It's not sort of like, you know, it was only two or three minutes. It seems like it was a period of time because they were talking and they were discussing, and Elijah and Moses are asking the Lord and, and hearing from him. And so I think there's a period of time here. And the disciples have fallen asleep. Like, really? How in the world did they fall asleep when there's this amazing thing happening in front of them? But they did. And so they're asleep, and they wake up, and they, they go, um, oh, I know what we ought to do. Now that you guys are leaving, because they were leaving, um, why don't we set up three sacred tents? And really, it says here that Peter didn't know, realize what he's saying. So he didn't mean this in a, in, you know, yeah, let's do this kind of way. It was like, this is a really bad idea, Peter, what you have. That's, that's what he's come up with. Because he's equating the three of them. And he's saying, well, Moses, he's, you know, the giver of the law. Like, he's the deliverer from Egypt. And Elijah, well, he's a great prophet, and he represents the prophets. And he brings all the messages of deliverance. And there's Jesus, and he, he's going to deliver us from Rome. So, like, all three of these men are really important to us. And he isn't getting it. And that's when the Father steps in. And the Father, this voice from the cloud, think of the, the cloud that hovers over the Ark of the Covenant. Think of the cloud that is the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So the cloud is God presence really with them and he says this voice comes out of the cloud and it's the voice of the father this is my son my chosen one listen to him remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago about listening it's when you're talking to a kid and you're talking and they're just yeah 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 and you say you take their little face and you put it right up to yours and you say listen in other words let it sink into your ears. And Jesus says that to them in verse 44. He says, let it sink into your ears. Like, 
In other words, get it in your heart. Like, really pay attention here to what I'm saying to you. And so the Father is saying, listen to him, to Jesus. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Now, they kept silent, and they didn't report this to anyone because, again, they're not, they're not ready to. Peter does. In 2 Peter, you can read it at another time. In 2 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he actually does um, speak it then, but that's you know after the resurrection when he writes his letter. So let's move on to the next one. Um, and it came about on the next day that when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. And behold, a man... Now, it sounds like this is like, okay, something completely different, but they all fit together. A man from the multitude shouted out, saying, so he's back with the multitudes, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. So you can hear the anguish of this father. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. In other words, it keeps happening over and over. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said something very strange. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground, like again, and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Let's just have a look at this. Like these are, this is a demon. And up until this point, up until Jesus came, they could not cast out demons because they did not have the power and authority to be able to do that. That power and authority only rests with God. And the power and authority to cast out demons is truly a God thing. And so when Jesus comes, he does it, and that's why they're all so shocked. Wow, he even has authority over the demons. You've, you've read that scripture before. And so they're shocked when he does that. And so Jesus, um, back at the beginning of Luke, if you go back to verse 1, you'll see what he gave to them. It says, um, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. So he's given his disciples the power to do this. They have the power to cast out demons like Jesus does because that power came from Jesus. And yet, when this poor father comes to them, they can't do it. And the question is, why can't they do it? And a thought that I had was that because they don't understand power yet. They're still in the old paradigm. Power like world power versus power like God's power. And they don't get it yet. And so they are not able to have God's power working through them the way it ought to be working through them. And so who is Jesus talking to when he says, oh, you perverted, unbelieving generation? Well, is it the Father? Is it the son who's demon-possessed? Is it the multitudes who are watching? Is it the disciples who ought to be able to do this and couldn't? I'm not sure. It's generation. Maybe it's all of them. Maybe that's part of the problem with the church today when we see that we are continually being suppressed by world power. How can that be? World power doesn't even come close to God's power. And maybe it's because we're not believing 
in the true power and authority of Jesus Christ. And if we as the church would move out in the power of Christ and not try and get world power, but Christ's power, then we will see real change happening. And so um, wherever it is with these guys, it's really a reference to unbelief. And Peter, I think, is included in that. Their unbelief, because it's the disciples who were given the power by God and yet not able to use it. And we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And are we using it within the church? I'm not sure. Sometimes I think we do. But a lot of times I think we don't. A lot of times I think we ourselves doubt the words of Christ. And he's told us, if we doubt them, that he's going to be ashamed of us. I don't want him ashamed of me. And I don't want him ashamed of you. So we want to move in belief and not be held back by unbelief and consequently inability. So um, I'm going to keep reading. We're at uh, verse 42. Oh, that um, Satan, you know when he came to Jesus, I think that was sort of like Satan's last little bit to say, you know, I have power here. And he throws the boy down again. It was sort of like a slap in the face to Jesus. And Jesus, with one word, rebukes the unclean spirit, and he's cast out. One word. The breath of his mouth. When he returns, it's one word, like the breath of his mouth, is going to slay the enemy. That's the power of God. It's, it's not this thing that we have to wield and try to drum up within ourselves. The power of God is simply us believing God and acting in that belief. Um, let's start at verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he was saying to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. And an argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Hello, we're still in the old power um, paradigm. We're not understanding. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, and they're not letting Jesus know they're having this argument, but Jesus knew their heart. And Jesus knows all of our hearts. He knows exactly what we're thinking. I mean, we don't have to say it out loud. He knows. And um, he took a child now. He's going to do an illustration. And he stood him by his side, so this little kid, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, and I'm imagining he's looking at this little boy because they would think of him as, you know, no big deal. Whoever receives um, the least among you, this is the one who is great. So it's not world power. It's not the one who looks great in the world's eyes. It's the one who is the least, the one who has humbled himself, emptied himself, and allowed the power of Christ to work through him. And we can only do that when the Holy Spirit resides within. And the Holy Spirit only resides within if we are born again. That's what it is to be born again, is to have a new nature. The old nature is gone. The new nature has come. And he has replaced that heart of stone with a heart of beating flesh for him, it tells us in Jeremiah. 
And so we have this new heart that's given to us, the Spirit of God who dwells within by His grace. The Spirit of God dwells within us. There's nothing that we've done. It's Him who's allowed this to be the case. And so the Holy Spirit dwells within so that we too might operate in the power of Christ. So that when we speak the word of God, it goes forth with power. Not because of our power, but because we've been able to humble ourselves, step aside, and allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. And it's his power that affects change. And that's what we're really called to. Life change within ourselves. We are not the same people. If we have the Holy Spirit within, the old nature is gone. If we remain in sin, it's because we're like Peter, who was given the power, but wasn't accessing the power of God because of his unbelief. Now later, he does. There's hope. There's always hope. Always hope with God. Like, I think some of us, for sure, will be saying, well, you know, I haven't been so great. I haven't been able to overcome these things. So I'm not sure that I have the Holy Spirit. But if you have asked the Lord to cleanse you from sin, if you have repented from that sin, if you have asked the Lord to be your Savior, to be your substitute on the cross, that he would take care of all your sin, that he would, it would be on him and not on you, then believer, you are there. And you have received the Holy Spirit. But are you operating in the Holy Spirit? It takes continued belief in who Jesus is and the power that he gives um, to his believers, to his loved ones. But look at Peter, what he says in Acts 4, I'm looking at verse 8. Um, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, so there we have it, said to them, he's speaking in front of all these people. Now, this is Peter who denied the Lord, who ran away because a servant girl said, oh, I think you know him. I think you were with him. And he denied it and ran away. He fled and later wept bitterly. But now we see him in Acts. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Now, he's not just talking to Joe Schmo. He's talking to the Sanhedrin, like all of them. And he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, because obviously he healed this guy, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He... Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That is the good news. And when Peter spoke the good news of salvation, I am sure Maybe these rulers and elders had a problem with him, but I'll bet you others listening were falling down in repentance before the Lord. And that's what he calls for each one of us, to repent, to turn to him, and to walk in the power of Christ. Like it is, a, it is an exchange life. It is a different life that we take. It's his life. 
It's no longer my life, it's his life that I live. And I live um, for his glory. So is this the truth for you? The power of the Lord comes through having the Holy Spirit within. And um, I want to read to us as we conclude, and I thank you, Lord, for what you um, continually teach us and for how you constantly are moving us to more fully believe and understand the things that you have said. So I pray this for you. I pray this for me. And let's look at Zechariah because Zechariah is quite the guy. We don't read about it here, but it tells us in Matthew, Jesus tells us actually, that Zechariah was martyred. And he gives this um, prophecy. And I want this to be true of us as, as we stand. So if you'll stand with me, we'll conclude. And I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Zechariah prophesied these things, and it cost him his life. And it says, Jesus tells us in Matthew, that he was martyred between the altar and the sanctuary. So, or the temple, it says in Matthew, but it's understood to be the holy place. And so he was martyred for these words. But listen to what he tells us. Um, so he's talking to the people. He's, he's the prophet in Zerubbabel's day when they were building the temple. Then he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, I want you to put your name in there. This is the word of the Lord to you saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. If you would like to pray with me, I would be glad to pray with you. I'll be up here for a bit. Millerville Community Church is a non-denominational country-style church with a huge heart for God. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.